Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's lecture. My name is Sandy Hager. I'm a fellow in international political economy here at the LSE in the Department of International Relations. And it's a great pleasure for me to be able to introduce today's uh, speaker, Jonathan Nitsan. Jonathan is a professor of political economy at York University in Toronto. And together with his longtime collaborator, Shimshon Bickler, Jonathan has done something uh, remarkable. He's developed an entirely new theory of political economy, uh, one that conceptualizes capitalism as a mode of power. Um, this new capitalist power framework is born out of three decades of research on inflation, energy conflicts in the Middle East, incarceration, the global financial crisis, and much more. Now, before Jonathan speaks, I just want to draw your attention to two websites that I think might be of interest. The first is uh, Bickler and Nitsan's own website, the BN Archives, which is posted here. Um, at this website, you can find most of their publications free of charge, and the URL for that website is bnarchives.net. The second website is a website for a new research project that's been inspired by the work of Jonathan and Shimshon. And that's the Forum on Capitalist Power. The purpose of this forum is to bring together people from all over the world who are interested in advancing power-centered research to political economy. And the URL for that uh, website is capitalistpower.com. So without further ado, I'd like to turn things over to Jonathan, who's going to, his presentation today is going to address the provocative and important, but also largely neglected question of whether or not capitalists can afford recovery. So leave it to Jonathan. Okay, thank you, Sandy, and uh, thank you, everybody, for being here this uh, Sunday afternoon. Uh, recovery. I think that uh, a lot of commentators, whether they are economic commentators or financial commentators, uh, social commentators in general are still preoccupied with the question of recovery. The world remains mirrored in a serious crisis and it's a lingering crisis and the key question seems to be how to get out of this crisis. And what I'd like to do today is to raise a question that very few people ask and I think nobody has answered and that is whether capitalists can afford recovery in the first place. Now, this question does not come out of the blue. Over the past uh, few years, uh, from just uh, around the beginning of uh, the current stage of the crisis, 2008 and onwards, uh, Shimshon and, and I have been uh, arguing that this crisis is a systemic crisis. In other words, it's a crisis uh, that threatens perhaps the very existence of capitalism and that capitalists in this crisis have been struck by what we call systemic fear. Uh, this fear is objectively grounded, we claimed. And it's objectively grounded in a way that is quite different from the explanations that are given by heterodox political economists, particularly Marxists. From the Marxist perspective, this crisis, in some sense, is a combination of a gradual weakening of the accumulation process. And, and we argue, in fact, to the contrary, that this crisis comes uh, or is born out of the tremendous uh, power of capitalism. So uh, it's actually an opposite explanation. It, uh, 
On the one side, you have gradual weakening, and we argue that capitalism has been incredibly powerful, and crisis is born out of this hubris peak of capitalist power. Now, these almost diametrically opposed uh, perspectives are anchored in two different cosmologies, or so it seems. The conventional cosmology that I think Marxist political economists share with mainstream economists is the view of capitalism as a mode of production and consumption. So it's, it's a view of capitalism as based essentially in, a, in an economic system. And we think of capitalism quite differently. We think of capitalism as a mode of power. And we think of capital as an institution of power. So these are two very different starting points of analysis, although there are many overlaps between our analysis and the Marxist framework. There are also very significant differences. Now, if we think of capital, capitalism as a mode of power and of capital as power, then immediately there is this issue of resistance to power. In order to continue and accumulate, in order to continue and augment power, you have to exert this power. And that power means inflicting damage, inflicting sabotage, threatening the underlying population. And at some point, there's a reaction to that power. Reaction is a passive thing. Uh, occasionally, when you press too hard, you can actually transform the system. And reaction turns into something active something that actually transmutes the system into something else. And our argument in a nutshell was that towards the 2000, capitalists started to sense that there might emerge this, what we call asymptotic scenario, that power is approaching its peak strength. And from that point onwards, it actually might invert. That resistance to it can become autonomous to some extent and actually change the system. And that is, we argued, was the fundamental basis for the fear of capitalists looking into the future. And the reason is that the processes of modern capitalism are based on capitalization. Capitalization is looking into the future, assessing the future and its impact on present profitability and on present risk perception, and all sorts of things that go into the financial quantification of capital. And because you look into the future, and the future looks very much more risky and very much more threatening than the present, immediately that gets reflected in asset value. So what we have seen over the past decade or so is a systemic decline in markets. We see some uh, you know, uh, reversion now. But overall, the last 10 years or so, have been characterized by what we call a major bear market. And that is, we argue, a reflection of the perception of a future that might look radically different than, say, the past 70 years. So that's the basis of systemic fear. You exert a lot of power in order to exert more power, in order to accumulate more capital as power. Uh, you need to exert more of that power. And at some point, something is going to give because of the asymptotic nature of power. It cannot increase forever. And capitalists looking into the future are bringing the future into the present that gets reflected in asset prices, and we get a major bear market as a result. Now, what I'd like to do today is try to explore this asymptotic scenario, to explore the possibility 
of a systemic crisis and the objective basis that capitalists might uh, consider as the reason for a future radically different than the present. But in order to do so, and uh, this I've learned from uh, giving presentations in the past, I need to spend quite a lot of time situating our own analysis uh, relative to existing analysis, because otherwise you might actually find it difficult to escape the gravitational force of existing frameworks that you have. So try to explain what existing approaches suggest about the crisis, and then uh, give you uh, perhaps some insight into our argument and how it might differ from what you are used to. So the structure of the presentation uh, will be divided into three. The first part, I will deal with the so-called macroeconomic creed. That's the dominant liberal approach. And economists uh, tend to believe that they have solved all the theoretical questions, and the only questions remain uh, to be solved are the how rather than the why. So Milton Friedman is uh, famous for saying that the only difference, say, between monetarists and Keynesians is the elasticity of the, the elasticities of the various functions. So it's a quantitative difference rather than a difference in, in, uh, in principle. So the question uh, that macroeconomic uh, economists uh, present to themselves is, you know, how do we fix this thing? How do we change the nuts and bolts or some of the principles in order for this to actually work properly? The second part deals with the Marxist perspective, and that's very, very different. Marxists understand capitalism as a conflictual, conflictual system, and therefore the question that Marxists try to address is not, whether, is not how to actually bring about a recovery, but whether a sustained recovery is feasible in the first place. And only then we will uh, get to the theory of capital as power, and there I will raise the question, which is, in my opinion, prior, of whether capitalists can afford recovery, whether they're interested in recovery in the first place, and what does it all mean. So there's quite a lot of steps before we get to the so-called punchline. Okay, so let's begin with the macroeconomic creed. And uh, if you skip to page three of your handout, you see a list of quotes. And the title is Systemic Fear. So what I'd like to do with those quotes is give you some sense of the mindset of the ruling class as expressed by policymakers and journalists over the past few years. The first quote is from Alan Greenspan from 2008. Alan Greenspan used to be uh, the head of the Federal Reserve Board in the United States. He was uh, nicknamed the Maestro. Uh, I worked at the bank credit analyst in the 1990s as uh, sort of a financial analyst. And uh, back then in the office and around the financial business sector, he was called God. Not God's representative, but God. Uh, now, he, in 2008, was appearing before a Congressional Inquisition Committee, and he said, the whole intellectual edifice collapsed in the summer of last year. Uh, and uh, he uh, confided in the committee by saying that himself and people like him uh, were in a state of shock disbelief. Now, this is coming from God. Uh, 
A year later, the editors of the Financial Times, reputedly the most important capitalist daily in the world, uh, write that uncertainty is the only certain thing in this crisis. So this is explicitly stated in an editorial, and I'm, I'm not going to read the entire text, but you can browse through it. Uh, Gillian Tett, ostensibly one of the smartest uh, journalists in the Financial Times, writes, the pillar of faith on which this new financial capitalism were built have all but collapsed. And that collapse has left everyone from finance minister or central banker to small investor or pension holder bereft of an intellectual compass, dazed and confused. So this is 2009. That's kind of the height of the financial turmoil. But things haven't changed very much over the next five years. The last quote is from... um, a gathering of central bankers in Jackson Hole uh, in the U.S. This is kind of a luxurious resort in w- to which uh, central bankers retreat every year to discuss the problems of the world. And the journalist here summarizes the feeling at the conference and uh, quoting some of the policymakers as stating that they were flying blind when steering their economies and that they are in uncharted territories. Uh, In a way, that means that the models do not give them the results they expect, and they rely on uh, quantitative models, and those models seem to not work. Now, these are the people who are supposed to know, and if they express themselves in that way, you can appreciate that they have a serious problem, and they are reflecting a mindset of the ruling class at the time, and this is just a year ago. Now, the question is, why this systemic fear? Why is this great anxiety that something is going seriously wrong? In order to begin exploring this uh, objective setup, uh, we'll begin with the first figure. There are plenty of figures, about 16, in your handout, and we will go through all of them. And I'll try to explain them. I will ask you to raise questions only in the, he- in the end, but if you have a technical question about the graph, you can ask me and I will try to clarify because I know not everybody is familiar with the graphic presentation, but un- unfortunately or fortunately, capitalism is a very quantitative system and that's the language of the capitalists. And if we don't speak the language of the capitalists, it's quite difficult to understand the way they organize their system. So that will be, excuse me, there are plenty of them here. So So figure one is a snapshot, something that finance ministers or central bankers would look at to uh, get a sense of what has, has happened over the past 15 years. Uh, And what is the situation currently relative to the recent past? And what it gives you is the most general indicator for so-called economic performance. That's the annual growth of the GDP. So every observation here measures the growth of the gross domestic product in so-called real terms, in quantitative terms, relative to the previous year. And there are three categories. The first category is for the advanced countries. The second category is for developing and emerging 
countries. And the third one is the so-called average. It's for the world as a whole. And we can see here the first crisis of the 2000, which happened uh, between 2000 and 2002. And we see a, a sort of a synchronized decline in growth rates. But that was uh, still not in negative territory. GDP was still growing. Uh, there is a recovery uh, all the way towards 2008 in all three categories. And then, and then comes the uh, great uh, decline. Uh, a massive drop in the advanced countries, GDP contracted by about 5%. Uh, GDP also almost contracted in the developing world, around 0%. And the world as a whole contracted by about 3%. So that was a very, very deep recession. The uh, recovery from that deep recession was pretty brisk, uh, but it was also pretty short. And we can see that uh, the slide is renewed uh, after a year or so. All the indicators point down. Uh, we see some increase in the advanced countries. Where I worked at the bank credit analyst, they used to call this a dead cat bounce. You know, if you take a cat and you drop it from a high rise, goes. That doesn't mean that the cat is alive, right? Uh, so the question uh, arises here whether uh, what happened in the last year in the advanced countries is a dead cat bounce, or is it really the beginning of a sustained recovery? And I think that the feeling among, uh, among uh, the policymakers and the capitalists is that it might be the latter. Uh, they are very hopeful. They cross their fingers that this is uh, serious beginning, but there's, there's great hesitation. And the reason there is a great fear about the future is that this recovery that we see now is, to some extent, coming at the footstep of massive policy, policy intervention. So if that is the most we can get from that massive policy intervention, we might be in trouble. Now, in order to get a sense of how serious the situation is, uh, we need uh, a little bit of theoretical background. Again, I'll try to keep it to the minimum uh, in the beginning. And this is equation one. I think uh, there are several more equations down the road. I'll try to explain them all. Uh, it's titled Decomposing GDP. And that equation goes back to David Hume, who, who is reputed to have invented this so-called classical dichotomy, the argument that economic, uh, the economic sphere is made of two separate realms. The first is the real realm. This is where the real action uh, is situated. This is where utility is uh, enjoyed. This is where productivity is experienced. This is where production takes place. This is when unemployment is suffered, and so on. And then there is the other realm, the nominal realm of prices, of money, of finance, which is not that important. It's mostly a mirror of the real realm. But it's also a lubricant, to some extent, of real economic activity. And this type of decomposition simply, uh, when is translated to contemporary jargon, says that the nominal dollar value of GDP, the gross domestic product, uh, is computed. In fact, it is a product of two components, the real GDP and the nominal price level. If you were able to put everything that is produced in the economy in a particular year in a giant basket, so this is your real GDP. And you multiply that giant basket by the average price 
of all the little commodities in that basket, you get the price of the basket. It's like going to the supermarket, you have a basket with different things, and you multiply that basket by the average price, say a pound and 20 pence or whatever, and then you have the price of the entire basket. So this is how GDP is computed. Nominal GDP is real GDP times the average price level. And economists around the world do that every day. Now, why do I give you this theoretical uh, bit? Because it's easier to understand how theory develops relative to this equation. Up until the 1930s, the liberal dogma was that policy intervention was unnecessary and, in fact, uh, possibly harmful. It was unnecessary because the real economy, in other words, Q in this equation, or real GDP, was always hovering around its equilibrium full employment value. So if you leave the economy alone, it will always gravitate back to full employment. So that's the self-correcting market, the liberal idea that markets are self-correcting. And therefore, if government intervenes, for example, by lowering the rate of interest or by trying to spend on public works, the only thing that it can do is actually create inflation. Because in practice, the government doesn't go and affect the real economy. It spends money, or it lowers its taxes, or it increases its taxes, or it prints money. It does things in the nominal realm. So it affects nominal GDP, and then the hope is that it can also affect real GDP. The liberals up until the 1930s says, say no. Because the economy is already hovering around full employment. So if you're printing more money, say, or if you're spending on something else, the only thing you can create is inflation. If you're cutting back, you will create deflation, but you don't affect the real economy. And for that reason, there's no point in intervening. You can always cause distortions, but you cannot really help. And parenthetically, Marx was more or less of the same opinion. Because for governments to intervene, governments need to tax. And, and taxes can come only from the surplus. Taxes can come only from capitalists because workers already earn subsisting wages. So you cannot lower the wages less than subsistence. You have to tax the capitalists, and that's going to undermine accumulation. So as far as the capitalists are concerned, it's better to have smaller government. That was the view until the 1930s. Now, the Great Depression shattered that perspective, more or less completely. So. We have unemployment at around, say, in the U.S., around 20 or 25 percent, and that was quite obvious to everybody. And we had large chunks of the productive capacity lying idle, and that was obvious. And it was also obvious that uh, the economy didn't fix itself. It wasn't self-correcting. Everybody could see it. It was just not reacting uh, to market signals. The only uh, group of people who could not see it were the economists. Because the theory told them that that was impossible. It was impossible for an economy to get stuck at an unemployment equilibrium. The only equilibrium which was possible was full employment equilibrium. But here we have equilibrium which is less than full employment, 20%, 25% unemployment. And this is where Keynes comes into the picture. Keynes wrote a book in the 1930s called, called The General Theory. It was a very famous book and rightly so. And what he managed to uh, do is persuade his colleagues that the economy can get stuck at less than full employment. That's why he called it the general theory, because 
a special case is full employment equilibrium. But the general case is just equilibrium could be less than full employment. And there are many more points of less than full employment than full employment. So that's a general theory. And secondly, he uh, argued that the government can step in and affect, sure, the price level, but can also affect real GDP. So not only can the economy be at less than full employment, the government can fix things. And that was his great achievement to persuade economists that uh, the government can actually uh, intervene uh, in an effective way in the economy. And that, that was quite a dramatic change compared to the pre-1930s. And his argument was based on pretty crude psychology. And there are two psychological principles. The first principle was that capitalists act as savers as well as investors. A saver is somebody who earns an income and puts some of it aside. An investor is somebody who takes this income and builds things with it. As savers, capitalists tend to save more and more as capitalism becomes more affluent. And as investors, capitalists tend to invest less and less. So there's a lot of resources, a lot of resources that are leaking out of the system in the form of saving, but not enough are drawn back in the form of investing in new capacities. So there's a difference. And that difference creates chronic stagnation. So this is a psychological difference between investors and savers that causes capitalism, as it advances, as it becomes more affluent, to be stagnating. Secondly, there is instability in capitalism that is built in. And the reason is that capitalists invest with an eye to the future. So they have to make investment now based on future expectations. But the future, Keynes says, is not only unknown, it's unknowable. It has an element of novelty. Nobody, including capitalists, know what the future has in store. So capitalists have to make decisions based on gut feeling. And he called that gut feeling the animal instinct. So capitalists behave erratically because their optimism and pessimism depends on many things, but certainly is not objective. And therefore, there's a built-in inst instability into the investment uh, process, and therefore, this feeds into instability in capitalism. So again, psychology causes capitalism to stagnate over the long haul, but also to be quite unstable. And the solution here is the government. The government can step in and can generate spending to compensate for insufficient investment by capitalists. And the government can also step in and stabilize the system. In other words, the government can save capitalists from their own folly. All right. Now, the record of the Keynesian period is quite consistent with these claims. <clears throat> in this figure, what we show are two very basic measures that capitalists use to understand their world. The first measure is the rate of unemployment. And by the way, this is for the United States. Almost all the charts, well, most of them are for the United States. And the reason being is that the US offers the most systematic and comprehensive data set. It's not because it's the only thing that counts. It's certainly an important part of capitalism, but it's not the only part of capitalism. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, I can present here only a partial picture. So this is the United States. So the top part of the chart is the rate of unemployment. It shows you every year what part of the labor force was looking for work but, un but unable to find work. 
and that's plotted against the right-hand scale. The bottom part of the chart, plotted against the left-hand scale, is the rate of GDP growth. Again, it's real GDP, so that's the quantitative measure of economic activity. And every year, it tells you by how much it grew relative to the previous year. Okay. Now, what we try to do in this chart is to contrast the period before Keynes with the period after Keynes. So, the cutoff point is uh, 1946. It's the end of the Second World War. And you see dotted red lines for both the first period and the second period for each of the series. Like that, right? Now, these dotted lines represent one standard deviation above and one standard deviation below the average for the period. Those of you who haven't taken statistics, don't worry. You will understand the rest of the presentation even without knowing what a standard deviation is. It's just a statistical measure that tells us about the dispersion of the series. If a series goes like that, it's, it has very little dispersion. If it goes like that, it has a lot of dispersion of volatility. Now, the argument is that under normal circumstances, one standard deviation above and one below the average will contain about two-thirds of the deviation. So, we compute that for the period up to 46 and from 46 onwards. And it's quite clear that for both series, the deviations have been compressed significantly, anywhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of the deviation. So government intervention, in a way, has managed to not only prevent another Great Depression, but to reduce the volatility of capitalism quite significantly. And this picture is not unique to the United States. It's actually shared by other experiences by other countries as well. So Keynesianism, at least from that perspective, uh, managed to save capitalism from uh, some of its uh, most serious shortcomings, or so it seems. Uh, policymakers seem to have managed to, to have learned how to manage their economies. And in some senses, it was a blessing, but in other senses, it was a curse. It was exactly a problem for capitalists because capitalists have been, in some sense, dethroned. Previously, capitalist confidence was very crucial. So if capitalists are not confident, everybody is being, everybody is being punished. Not anymore. If capitalists do not behave properly, they're not investing enough, or they're investing erratically, governments can move in and fix things. We've, we've seen the record here. So one thing is that capitalists are no longer in the sort of exclusive position in the driver's seats. That's bad enough. But policymakers can step in and do something even worse than that. They can start taxing capitalists. And we've seen that in the United States and elsewhere. We've seen corporate taxation rising significantly after the Second World War, as well as marginal personal tax rates are rising. So capitalists actually fill it uh, in the bottom line. So, in a way, it was a blessing in disguise. It saved capitalism, but it threatened capitalists. Conclusion? Well, Keynes has to be undone. And this is where Milton Friedman and the monetarists come into the picture. According to Friedman and the monetarists, the pre-1930s model of liberalism was just about right. It had two glitches. And 
there were uh, correctable glitches. The first glitch was uh, that it had no notion of the natural rate of unemployment. And the second glitch is, it, is that it did not have a clear notion of expectations. So let me try to explain be, both of these concepts, beginning with the natural rate of unemployment. The natural rate of unemployment is like the emperor's new clothes. It's only the monetarist who can actually see it. Because up until the 1930s, the neoclassicists played uh, according to what you see is what you get. If unemployment, say, is half a percent or hovering around that level, and any dip is immediately corrected, well, the theory is fine because the economy is self-correcting. But if unemployment is 25 percent, and stuck there, well, obviously, neoclassical or pre-1930s liberalism is not a very useful theory because it doesn't correspond to reality. So you look at the evidence, and you take them at face value. Uh, the monetary said, wait a minute. Appearances can be deceiving. The unemployment that you see is not unemployment at all. In fact, most of it is natural. And why is that? Well, we live in a dynamic society. Capitalism is a system that not only grows all the time, it transforms itself all the time. So we have new products, we have new industries, we have new sectors. We have changes that are qualitative and happening all the time. So some sectors are going down while others are rising. What this creates is friction. There's a lot of friction in this system because it's constantly transforming itself. And in that friction, uh, quite a number of people get caught. And they end up being unemployed, but this is temporary unemployment as we move from one form of production and consumption to another form. A lot of people also are constantly searching for unemployment, for, sorry, for employment. So uh, you have a job, and uh, you want a better job. What do you do? You quit your job, and you are constantly on the internet or on the phone or writing letters, depending on when the theory is written. Uh, looking for better jobs. That's what economists call search unemployment. And Edmund Phelps won a Nobel Prize for inventing this idea of search unemployment. So, in fact, most unemployment is not unemployment at all. It's natural, it's desirable, it's useful, and things that are natural, natural, desirable, and useful should not be messed with. So there's no point in trying to reduce unemployment below its natural rate because it's natural. Now the question is, can unemployment, though, be reduced below its natural rate? And the answer is yes, it can be, but only by cheating. The government, if unemployment is 8% and the government wants 4 it can do that, but only by cheating us. And this has to do with the nature of economic agents, as neoclassical political economists imagine those agents. If the agents are rational, so they are constantly calculating the options. And if they are fully informed, they have all the information, they will focus only on the so-called real economy. And they will ignore all nominal signals. Everything that has to do with nominal prices, with finance, it will be ignored because that belongs to the nominal side. They will focus on the real side. However, if agents are confused, they're not fully rational, or they're not fully informed, they might misjudge nominal information for real information, and they will make bad decisions. Under those circumstances, governments always have the temptation to cheat us against our own true interest, to lower unemployment. So if we're unemployed, we're going to get a job, and that's obviously bad, but nevertheless, governments have the incentive to do that. 
Now, the efficacy of cheating depends on expectations. So we talked about the natural rate. Expectations has to do with how agents interpret nominal signals. Now, in Milton Friedman and Edmund Phelps, agents are not fully rational. They're kind of uh, lethargic. They're slow. It takes them time to learn. So they take the signals that they see, prices and nominal variables, and they learn only slowly through those signals about the real economy. You can always cheat them. For example, governments can print a lot of money, and agents will think that the economy is booming in real terms, and therefore offer more jobs, and they will demand more jobs, and then we'll have higher employment, because agents are not fully rational. Now, Friedman said, this can last for a while, but not forever. Eventually, agents will learn, in which case the effect of the policy will dissipate, and we end up with much higher inflation, because government intervene and back with the same level of high unemployment, the natural rate of unemployment. But this can last for 20 years. So Friedman was a good beginning, but not good enough. This is the 1960s, when he comes with this idea of adaptive expectations. In the 1970s come people like uh, Lucas and Sargent, and they say, no, agents are fully rational. You can never cheat them, not even for a moment. So the government can do whatever it likes. The agents see through the policy, and they ignore the policy. So you can never cheat them. You can never actually reduce unemployment be below its natural rate. There's no point even in trying. And then in the 1980s, there's the final version of it, or at least the final version I'm aware of, uh, and that's called the real business cycle version. And this is with people like uh, Kidlin and Prescott. These guys said, look, the whole business cycle is a supply-side phenomenon. Government intervenes through the demand side by spending and taxes. There's no link between the two. So there's no point even in trying to cheat people, even for the momentary run. Now these people, Phelps, Friedman, Lucas, Sargent, Kidlin, Prescott, all went on to receive the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics. And they managed to do so by essentially undoing Keynes. This is what they got the Nobel Prize for. And they produce a candid-like new dogma that we live in the best of all possible worlds. Uh, unemployment is always natural, whether it's 2% or 20%. And policy is ineffective, and intervention is unnecessary. So we're talking about 1980s, 1990s. This is the beginning of neoliberalism. And it's based on this revival of pre-1930s theories that you shouldn't really mess with the economy. In other words, you shouldn't really mess with the capitalists. This is the situation in 2008. And then, and then the crisis struck, 2008. Uh, some of you were too young to remember. All right. The Great Recession coming after the collapse of the stock market in 2008. The Economist, as far as I know, remained completely unfazed. I tried to list one of my courses after the crisis uh, to cross-list one of my courses, because I'm teaching in political science at York, and I tried to cross-list it with economics. And the Economist tell me, told me no. And I said, why not? And they said, uh, we do things rigorously. And I said, well, you know, the crisis uh, didn't change anything? Said, no. Just we do things rigorously. There was just a, a wall of refusal. Uh, part of it, of course, is by continuous subsidization of economics. Part of it is by you know, tenure and so on. Uh, 
economic theory changed by very little, if at all, following the crisis. But the policymakers responded immediately. They panicked, and they panicked in unison. And they engaged in massive intervention. And I'd like to review very briefly the nature of this intervention. And there are two types of macroeconomic intervention. One is called fiscal intervention that has to do with spending and taxation. And the other has to do with monetary intervention, has to do with printing money and changing the rate of interest. So I'll explore each one of them briefly. So let's begin with the fiscal intervention. This chart shows the government budget balance in the OECD countries. Uh, and that's the black line. And you also see the dotted line for Germany and the red line for the US. And it is expressed as a percent of GDP. Now, if the balance is positive, it means the government levies more taxes than it spends. So it actually gets more revenues that it departs with. If the balance is negative, it means the government runs a deficit. And you can see that from the 1990s onwards, with the victory of monetarism and then the catchword of neoliberalism, we see budget deficits declining. So the deficit contracts towards zero. And somewhere around the 2000, it turns into even a small surplus. But after that, the situation inverts. We have the beginning of a major bear market. We have the first crisis of the early 2000s, so budget deficits increase. And then we have 2009, and the budget deficit in the, United, in, in the OECD goes to 8% of GDP. Uh, and in the United States, which is the bastion of liberalism, in other words, non-intervening governments, it's uh, 13%. So that's massive intervention. Now, this uh, should not be mistaken to a return to Keynesianism, because Keynesianism was not only about large government spending as well as large taxation. It was also about some form of planning, although Keynes was not talking about it. In practice, that's what happened. Government intervention involved some sort of planning. That's not what we see here. Here, it's quick and dirty Keynesianism. Essentially, it's tax cuts. So governments are panicking given the depth of the recession, and they are cutting taxes very, very heavily. But we see that the cuts are very short. Some of you may remember at that period of time, 2010, 11, and so on, government started to talk about austerity and the need to tighten our belts. Not theirs, but ours. Uh, and about fiscal cliffs in the US that we are just about to drop into the abyss. And you can see that the deficits are reverting and they are contracting. Governments are contracting the scale of their intervention. And why do they do that? Well, the next chart shows us the thought process of any government policymaker. When you spend more than you tax, the only way to do it is by levying, sorry, by borrowing money. So you tax X. You spend X plus something, the difference has to be financed by borrowing. As you borrow, what happens is that the government debt increases. We see the government debt in the OECD uh, collection of countries was about 40% in the 1970s. This rose to about 75% in 
in the early 2000s. But in just a few years, it soared to over 110%. So governments are now feeling that they have no longer any ammunition to fire this locomotive called fiscal policy. Because the only way to run deficits is to borrow more. And now they are at 110% compared to about 40%. So their hands are tied, or so, so they say. So that's the fiscal side. And that's why they are seriously concerned about the future. Now, the situation from the viewpoint of monetary policy seems to be equally uh, demoralizing. Up until 2008, the dogma spoke about uh, policy rules as far as monetary policy is concerned. You might have not heard this term. I will explain it. It's a central term for monetary policy. The argument is as follows. If you expect the economy to grow over the next 10 years by 2% annually on average, sometimes 1%, sometimes 3%, but on average 2%, and you want price stability as a, a central banker, you will expand the money supply by 2%. Sometimes the economy is going to grow at less than 2%, you have some inflation. Sometimes it will grow at more than 2%, you have some deflation. But on average, you have price stability. That's a monetary rule. You don't try to fiddle with the economy. You don't try to anticipate the future in every twist and turn. You just project the long term and then hands off. Just a machine that amplifies the money supply by 2% a year. You want 2% inflation? You make money grow at the rate of GDP growth. 2% plus another 2%. So you have 4%. 4% growth of money versus 2% growth of the economy. You have 2% inflation. So that's a monetary rule. The idea is that policymakers are like automatons. They feed the information into the machine, and the machine generates the expansion of the money supply. This way, you have no problems. Now, there's a lot of uh, debate and theorizing behind it, but that's basically the practical recommendation. And that's what happened more or less up until 2009. And then whole hell broke, broke loose. What we can see here is what came to be known as quantitative easing, or in simple words, printing money. This is the monetary base. The monetary base is just the measure of how much or how many notes and coins are in the economy at any particular point in time. The government affects the rate of interest and the amount of money by printing money as well as by relying on that amount of money generating an expansion of the credit system, which is private. But the thing that governments can control directly is only the number or the quantity of notes and coin in circulation, and that's what is measured in this graph. So this is just the so-called monetary base, M0. Now we can see that up until 2009, governments uh, in general in the US, the, e the EU, to some extent in Japan, follow a more or less strict policy rule. They kind of expanded the money supply in a stable fashion. But since then, things have changed. In the US, the money supply rose by a factor of almost five. So they, they uh, increased the amount of notes and coins tremendously, something that uh, was unthinkable uh, up until that point. Uh, the Japanese uh, have uh, 
remained uh, hesitant up until recently. In 2013, they have embarked on the same policy. And they doubled the money supply since then. And again, this is uh, unprecedented. The EU uh, has been much more hesitant because of the history of hyperinflation in the 1920s and the massive destabilization that was resulting from that money printing. But nevertheless, the EU still manipulated the money supply. So this is a complete breakup of the idea of monetary rule that dominated thinking for much of the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. And the fascinating thing about it is that it made almost no difference. That it was like running on empty. If you look at the rate of inflation over the past decade or so, and just what economists call core inflation, and that's inflation without energy and without food, because energy and food are quite volatile. It's been very stable. The argument of the monetarist, if you print too much money, you will have inflation. If you multiply the, the amount of money by a factor of five, you're going to have hyperinflation. No. Inflation remained between 1% and 2% in the OECD countries over the past decade. So it had no impact on inflation. That's from uh, the monetary perspective. Now, the Keynesians expected this massive intervention to actually boost investment. And the argument is quite simple. Capitalists invest because they expect a normal rate of return in the future, say 5%. If the rate of interest is 5%, there's no point in borrowing at 5% and investing at 5%. However, if governments reduce the rate of interest, then there's a difference. You borrow at 2%, you, you invest in 5%, there's a 3% difference. So the argument is, by printing a lot of money, you will reduce the rate of interest. Somehow you will revive investment. Well, that hasn't happened. The rate of investment out of GDP in the OECD countries in 1970 was 25%. So about a quarter of the GDP went to investment. At the eve of the crisis in, 20, uh, in, nine, uh, sorry, in 2007, it was about 21%. And now it's about 18%. So it's been going down, quite regardless of what government policy was. And actually, it's not that surprising if you look at this next chart, figure six. In order to revive investment, you have to lower the rate of interest. But what happens if the rate of interest is already close to zero? This is what Keynes called pushing on a string. Put a string on the table and try to push it. You're not, being, you're not going to be able to push it, right? It's the same thing here. If you want to reduce the rate of interest by printing money when the rate of interest is already close to zero, you will be pushing on a string. So all this printing of money goes to the stock market, to the bond market. This is why markets are booming in the financial realm. Uh, but investment is not being revived. Now, this brief discussion of fiscal policy and monetary policy perhaps serves to explain why the ruling class feels bereft of an intellectual compass and why the policymakers feel that they are flying blind when steering their economies. Not only has the dogma been abandoned by policymakers, uh, not only has the policy failed to achieve the stated goals, but also, policymakers are running out of ammunition. They have a huge budget deficit and a huge accumulated debt 
And also they have printed so much money, they're thinking of printing even more. So looking into the future, if there is another crisis of the magnitude of 2008-9, they are pretty much empty-handed. So that's more or less why there is this nagging feeling that we are in deep trouble from the viewpoint of conventional macroeconomics. Now, let's move to the Marxist perspective. The questions that Marxists are trying to answer is not how to bring a recovery, but whether a recovery is possible in the first place. And the short answer is that a sustained recovery is not possible in, uh, in the Marxist framework. And, and the gist of the answer, to simplify a lot, is quite simple because accumulation is a conflictual process. It's based on exploitation of workers by capitalists. And this conflict creates instability. It breeds repeated crisis. And eventually, uh, the hopefuls hope, the breakdown of capitalism. Now, Marx has not offered us a complete theory of crisis uh, and a coherent one. Nevertheless, it did offer a number of important key principles that generated in due course a huge literature, a huge Marxist literature of crisis. Now, of course, I cannot do justice to this literature here, but I'll try to highlight some of the principles that Marx and the Marxists have developed and generate some insights from those uh, principles and perhaps explore some of the difficulties they raise. And I will speak about three distinct theories. First is the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. The second is the impact of the reserve army of the unemployed. And the third one is the theory of underconsumption. And let's begin with the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. According to Marx, if we take capitalists as a class, they can only invest what they earn in profit. So the maximum amount of investment is the maximum amount of profit that you have. Some of the profit can be consumed, and therefore you can invest less than the amount of profit. But you can never invest more than the amount of profit. And therefore, if there is a tendency of the rate of profit to fall, there must be a tendency of the rate of accumulation to fall. Because if you invest less, then capital will accumulate at a lower rate. Now, in order to understand this principle, perhaps uh, a very quick brush of Marxist accounting. I'm sure some of you know this accounting better than I, but uh, just to put everybody at the same uh, level uh, very quickly. Okay? The first three equations or definitions uh, say that C is constant capital. Constant capital is the amount that capital is spent on already produced goods and services. And it's constant because Marx argues that that capital cannot generate surplus value. The second measure is called V, and that's variable capital. That's the amount that capitalists spend on live labor power. And labor power can generate surplus value. That's why it's called variable capital, because its size can vary by creating something new. And surplus value is what capitalists take from the workers that created this extra. Now, equation 1, 2, and 3 in Marx are measured in what Marx called socially necessary abstract labor time. So they are measured in units of labor time. Now what Marx says is, look, we can derive three important ratios from these definitions, and we can relate them to show that they're all interlinked. And with that, 
architecture, we can say something about the long-term tendencies of capitalism. So this accounting is not for its own sake. It's for the sake of drawing some conclusions about the fate of the system we live in. The first ratio that he spoke was, was the organic composition of capital. is the amount of constant capital that capitalists spend on buying already produced goods and services, mostly capital goods, relative to the amount they spend on live labor. And it's called the organic composition of capital, and there's some measure of mechanization. As capitalists mechanize, they will spend more on machines and already finished goods as opposed to live labor. So instead of having a lot of people working by hands, you have fewer and fewer people working with machines. Secondly, the rate of surplus value, the rate of exploitation, is the ratio of the surplus value that capitalists take from the workers relative to the amount they spend on those workers. And finally, the rate of profit is what capitalists take in surplus value relative to what they invest. And that's the constant capital plus the variable capital. So they spend on machines plus workers, and then they earn from that the surplus value. Now, if you were to take equation six and divide the numerator and the denominator by V, what you will get is the rate of profit expressed in terms of the other two ratios. So the rate of profit is just the ratio of the rate of surplus value, the rate of exploitation, and, sorry about that, and the organic composition plus one. That's just very simple arithmetic. So we're already in equation seven and we solved all the accounting problems that uh, we need to solve for this presentation. Now, what Marx is saying to us is quite simple if we reduce it to first principle. He says capitalists are competing with one another. And in order to compete, or the nature of competition is constantly striving to make more profit. And the way, one way of doing it is by mechanizing your production. If you're more mechanized, perhaps you're going to be more profitable than your competitors. So each capitalist is trying to mechanize as much as they can. And by mechanizing, they are increasing the organic composition. But you see, in this equation, if you increase the organic composition, you reduce the rate of profit. Now, capitalists, at the same time, are trying to exploit workers more. They're trying to get from workers more than they actually give workers in terms of wages. So they're trying to, rate to, sorry, to increase the rate of surplus value or rate of exploitation. If they succeed in doing so, they raise the rate of profit. So what he's saying is that the nature of competition in capitalism drives capitalists to increase the organic composition, and therefore they're shooting themselves in the foot, although they have no other choice, but that's the effect of it, which will reduce the rate of profit. At the same time, they try to exploit workers' war, which will increase the rate of profit. So there are two tendencies, and the question is which tendency is stronger? Now, Marx argues, although he never managed to completely convince himself by that claim and tried till his death to actually prove it to himself logically, that the organic composition is going to be stronger, that the tendency of mechanization is going to overwhelm, over the very long run, the tendency for more exploitation. So eventually, the denominator is going to rise faster than the numerator. The rate of profit is going to decline. The rate of accumulation is going to decline, and capitalism is going to slide into a terminal crisis. All right. Now, the problems with this argument are legion, and uh, we have written on it uh, in our book, Capital as Power, in chapters, 
6 and 7, if you're interested. But here I'll try to just outline some problems and try to illustrate them. The first problem is that labor values are not observable. We measure things in capitalism and price terms. But labor values are in hours of socially necessary abstract labor. And the, uh, the sad fact is that uh, capitalists, sorry, Marxists have been unable to actually develop an accounting system based on labor values. So this is a serious problem of actually testing this theory because we have to use a proxy, and the proxy might be completely irrelevant, and we will never know because we cannot observe socially necessary abstract labor. The second problem is that Marx associates the uh, organic composition with mechanization. The idea is that if you invest more in machines, the organic composition of capital is going to rise. That's not necessarily the case. Because if technology improves, you might be able to cheapen means of production very rapidly, as opposed to the price of labor power, in which case the organic composition is going to actually decline rather than rise. So mechanization itself is not necessarily a factor that will increase the organic composition. Last but not least, all of this framework is focusing on a division that Marx and Marxists uh, make between productive and unproductive economic activity. Productive activity is where surplus value is generated, whereas unproductive activity is something that absorbs surplus value. And unfortunately, there is no objective yardstick to decide which activity is productive and which activity is not. And that's quite important because one of them creates surplus value and one of them uses surplus value. So, we have very serious problems actually operationalizing this framework, but let's try to do something with it and to perhaps shed some light on the problems that uh, might emerge. The first uh, attempt is in figure seven. And we call this a naive Marxist uh, view because we actually do not follow the Marxist principle to the letter here. We're assuming, for argument's sake, that there's no division between productive and unproductive activity, that all activity is productive. Uh, and again, this is not what Marxists do. And we are measuring here the rate of profit and compare it to the organic composition of capital, assuming that prices reflect labor values and that all activity is productive. So the rate of profit is measured by simply taking all of the net national product, subtracting from it wages, which are presumably equivalent to the value of labor power, we get the surplus value. And we divide that by the amount of fixed assets and what is paid to workers. So that's what capitalists invest. And that gives us the rate of profit. The organic composition of capital is just the total amount of fixed assets in dollar terms divided by labor income. And what we see is the following. We see, first of all, that the two indices are inversely correlated, which is certainly consistent with Marx. We also see here that the rate of profit is declining over time, and it's certainly declining in the recent period since the 2000s. So the two things are inversely correlated. The rate of profit is declining, but the nagging problem is that the rate of profit should be declining because the organic composition is rising. But what we see here is that the organic composition of, of, of capital actually is declining over the long term rather than rising. Now, a Marxist would rightly say, well, that's uh, actually a hoax because you don't take 
account of productive versus unproductive activity. So let's examine the second uh, figure, figure eight, which actually tries to do that. Now, as I said, Marxists do not have a very clear yardstick for productive and unproductive activity. So say, take IBM. Some of the activity of IBM personnel is accounting, say. Is this productive or unproductive? Well, it's hard to tell. Uh, so Marxists, instead of trying to identify every activity as productive or unproductive, say, well, let's take a shortcut. Let's say, identify certain industries that are productive and classify all other industries as unproductive. Uh, typically, they will take manufacturing, mining, agriculture, and... Transport. No, not transport. Uh, agriculture and, um, again, mining... Uh, manufacturing, uh, agriculture, something else. Construction, Construction right. Uh, there's a fifth one, uh, and that's utilities. Uh, but utilities in the United States present a serious data problem, so unfortunately it is typically dropped from the analysis because of data problems. But they take those five and say, well, these are clearly productive. The rest are ambivalent, so let's ignore them. Now, you take those five sectors, you treat them as productive, and you say, they generate all the surplus value in the economy. So using this framework, what you do is you change the computation. The rate of profit is surplus value, and what surplus value is, is the total net national product less the wages just in those productive sectors. Because all the rest gets absorbed by some of the unproductive sectors. And you divide that by the productive assets, in other words, the assets of those four sectors, plus the wages in those four sectors. And the organic composition, again, is the organic composition just in the productive sector. So just those four sectors, the one of which I've forgotten, uh, divided by the productive wages. Now here what we, say, we see, again, short-term uh, inverse correlation, which is what you would expect. And we see that the organic composition is rising exactly as Marx claimed. However, the rate of profit, instead of declining, is rising as well. So we have a problem here, too. How do we sort out this problem? So these are some of the issues that, that uh, are quite ambiguous, I think, in the Marxist analysis, and uh, they do not give us a very clear picture of uh, crisis analysis. Let's move from here to the second theory, the reserve army of the unemployed. Marx argued that the reserve army of the unemployed, and I hope none of you belong to that reserve army, but maybe some of you uh, are members of that army or will be in the future, unfortunately, uh, that this has a regulatory impact on capitalist activity. It makes sure that the wage rate gravitates towards its true value. So workers receive a wage that is proportionate to the value of labor power. If there is a boom, workers raise their head because there's a great demand for labor power and the wages will move above their subsistence, their true value. But then capitalists will strike back because the rise in the wage rate is too high. That will harm profitability. Capitalists will cut back. There will be a crisis. And the automaticity of the crisis will inflate again. The reserve army of unemployed wages will gravitate back to their 
subsistence level. So this is a, a, a very uh, important built-in mechanism in capitalism to ascertain that workers receive their uh, true value. Now let's examine the first uh, of two charts that tries to examine this process. And here, this is for the US, what we plot here is the rate of unemployment, which is the size of the reserve army of the unemployed, and we compare that with the rate of change of the real wage. So the rate of change of the real wage is taking the real wage and measuring by how much it changes in percent term from one year to the next. But there's a trick here in the chart because remember, the unemployment should be inversely correlated with the wage rate. The higher the unemployment, the lower the wage rate. So I'm inverting here on the left-hand scale the, the scale for the rate of change of the real wage. It starts from plus 10 and go, goes all the way up to minus 8. So when you see a decline in the series for the rate of change of the real wage, in fact, it is an increase in the series. Now what we see here is a remarkable negative correlation. Every time the unemployment rate increases, the rate of change of the real wage decreases. And we can see uh, a very uh, sort of uh, interesting process happening in the run-up to the current crisis. We see unemployment moving down and the real wage accelerating in the run-up for the crisis. So by the year 2000, the real wage accelerated to a growth of about 3%, up from a growth of only half a percent. So you can interpret this crisis, this rise in unemployment, as an automatic sort of backlash of capitalism against workers, because wages are rising too fast. Unemployment increases. It inflates the reserve army of the unemployed and harms wages, so wages decelerate. Now, whether this was the trigger for the crisis uh, is quite impossible to tell, but certainly it's consistent, or seems consistent, with Marx's notion of the role of the reserve army and the automatic mechanism in this recent crisis. But Marx did not speak about the rate of change of the wage rate. He spoke about the level of the wage rate. And here, the picture is actually quite different. Here... We are measuring the rate of unemployment against the right-hand scale. And I forgot to mention that in the previous chart, the rate of unemployment was smooth as a moving average. Here, it's the actual level year after year. And we have two series for the level of the real wage. One is only manufacturing, that's a thick line. And the other is in the entire business sector, less farming. Now here we see a different picture. Up until 45 or so, the relationship is inverse. So when unemployment declines from the peak of the Great Depression, we see a rise in wages. And when there is an increase in unemployment, we see some decline in wages. But from 1945 onwards, the relationship seems to break down. We see unemployment rising, and the real wage, instead of falling, is rising with it. And when unemployment levels off, the real wage, instead of soaring, levels off with it. So again, it's hard to claim, based on this chart, that somehow this crisis has to do with the reserve army of the unemployed. This maybe belongs to the 19th century, but in the 20th century, it's much more difficult to make heads or tail uh, in this theory, at least in the United States. So let's move to the third and final uh, 
argument of the Marxist that has to do with underconsumption. And let me speak a little bit uh, about underconsumption before going into the chart. The theory of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, and to some extent the reserve army of the unemployed argument, uh, is associated with the production side, the ability of capitalists to produce surplus. But there's an, another argument that has to do with the realization of the surplus, the ability to absorb that surplus, the ability to purchase that surplus. Uh, and a realization crisis as opposed to a productive crisis is quite different. And let me try to uh, very, very briefly explain the basic principle underlying uh, the theory of underconsumption. Workers tend to consume all of their income. Now, I, I assume that most of you earn your living from a form of one form of wage or another, and most of you spend all of your income. And if you don't, you save it, usually in order to spend it on some consumption items in the near future. So the share of consumption out of your income is more or less one. And that's true for most workers. In the United States, for example, only the top 20% of the population save anything. Uh, the capitalists behave quite differently. Most of the income is actually not consumed. It's actually saved. And that's partly because they can afford it, because usually they are better off. But most importantly, because the social role compels them to invest rather than to consume. If a capitalist consumes uh, all his or her income, the end result is that he or she will cease to be a capitalist. So there's a fundamental difference between the behavior of workers and the behavior of, of capitalists as far as consumption out of income is concerned. Now imagine that there is an upward redistribution of income. So some of your income go, goes to capitalists. So the average share of consumption out of national income will decline because it will, the income will be shifted from people who spend it all to people who spend only part of it. So the average share of income going to consumption will decline. When that happens, redistribution generates a problem. Redis upward redistribution actually cuts consumption, and it generates a realization problem. The surplus cannot be purchased, because there's not enough demand for it. So consumption is under consumption. Under consumption causes a glut. Profits are declining. Prices are declining. Soon enough, capitalists fill the pinch, and they will invest less. So there is a general realization crisis. Now, the history of underconsumption and realization crisis is a little rocky, as far as Marxists are concerned. Uh, up until the early 20th century, most Marxists uh, viewed underconsumption theory with great suspicion, partly because Marx was quite ambivalent about it, uh, as opposed to the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. But with the early 20th century, the sentiment changed quite a bit. First, there was a massive explosion of imperialism during the latter part of the 19th century. Then came the Great Depression of the 30s, and then came the militarized boom of the 1940s. Uh, now, with the writing of John Hobson in the beginning of the 20th century about the role of underconsumption in the drive to imperialism, there was not enough consumption in Britain and some of the other European countries, and that's why there was a movement towards the uh, outside of, of the center. And with the work of Keynes on effective demand, 
the view of, of Marxists started to change, and they took more seriously the idea that underconsumption could be very important in generating uh, capitalist crisis. And one of the most innovative contributors to this literature was the Polish political economist Michael Kaletsky. Kaletsky wrote in the 1930s and 1940s, and he developed a class-based micro-macro model that was terribly innovative at the time. I thought it was quite ingenious. And what he did was to anticipate Keynes's general theory, and for that reason, Keynes is reputed to uh, refuse him entry into Cambridge. He can only go to Oxford. Uh, and, but also, it exceeded Keynes uh, in a certain important way. It exceeded Keynes because he introduced the structure of power into the macroeconomic model, something that Keynes never uh, dare even think about. And he argued that the structure of power affects distribution and therefore affects the performance of the economy. And he called that the degree of monopoly. The idea was that the degree of monopoly is some measure of the ability of capitalists to take a larger share of the national income. The greater the degree of monopoly, the greater the share of capitalists in national income. And that, of course, reduces the share of consumption in national income, as we suggested and therefore generates the possibility of a realization crisis. So what he's saying, essentially, Kaletsky, is that you need to look at the structure of power in the market in order to understand the macroeconomic performance. And that's very un-Keynesian, because Keynes tries to uh, abstract from the underlying micro and just look at the macro, and Kaletsky says no. Now, this argument gave rise to a new theory, maybe some of you heard of it, is the theory of monopoly capital that developed in the United States with uh, Paul Baran and Paul Sweezy and Monthly Review, uh, which became quite popular uh, in the second, uh, after the Second World War. Now, we can try to generalize Kaletsky and the monopoly capital school by saying, let's look at the distribution of income, not only between capitalists and workers, which is what Kaletsky focused about, uh, but let's look at the distribution of income in general, regardless of the source of that income. And this we do in this chart. So the bottom of this chart looks at the income share of the top 1%. This comes from the work of uh, Thomas Piketty and, and his colleagues. Uh, and the data here are smooth. There's 10-year moving averages, so you can see the trend. And the top of the chart shows you the rate of employment growth, which is an index of the performance of the economy. And we don't use GDP growth because GDP growth is made of two components. It's made of productivity growth, which has really nothing to do with the uh, overall level of activity, and employment growth. We are, one, we, we are re really interested in employment growth. Now, this is quite a stunning picture, I think. Uh, we see here three periods. We, th we see the Gilded Age up until the 1930s. And this is a period in which income inequality is rising. So capitalists are appropriating a larger share of the income. And employment growth is decelerating rapidly. Then we see the post-war Keynesian period of the welfare warfare state. This is a period of great moderation of inequality. Inequality is actually falling dramatically, up until the 80s. And what we see is that employment growth is accelerating significantly. We can also see a major spike with the Second World War and then a major decline in, in employment growth due to uh, 
mobilization and demobilization because of the war, but the general trend is upwards. And of course, from 1980s onwards, we see the victory of monetarism and what came to be known as neoliberalism. And that means a massive acceleration of income inequality and a massive deceleration of employment growth. The numbers we see recently is 20% uh, appropriated by the top 1% and unemployment growth of about zero or slightly more than that. And these are numbers that are equivalent to what we or the United States saw in the 1930s. So this is the dismal situation now. Now, from the perspective of an under-consumptionist, the situation looking forward has sort of two possibilities. Either we are going to go in the direction of the post-war era, so massive increases in equalization, inequality is declining, and more jobs, and all of you are going to have to choose between five different jobs. And the alternative is that the capitalists are not going to give an inch, and the situation is going to linger, maybe intensified, become more serious, and who knows what kind of uh, an explosion uh, can come out of that. So this is pretty consistent with the Marxist notion, I think, of underconsumption. However, so far, we did not uh, say anything about the nature of the crisis uh, in a fundamental way. We describe the crisis without ever asking, what is a crisis? Because maybe a crisis is not the same thing for everybody. So the conventional viewpoint is that the engine of capitalism is the economy. And the twin pistons are the accumulation of capital on the one hand and economic growth on the other hand. So as the capitalists accumulate more capital, they fuel economic growth. As economic growth increases, there's more capital accumulation. And both of these are measured in real terms. So you measure everything in real categories. And under those circumstances, what is a crisis? Well, when accumulation breaks down and when economic growth break, breaks down. So these are economic categories. And this is what we see in this chart here. This chart, again, is for the United States. The bottom line shows you the expansion of the GDP in absolute levels and the expansion of the, fis the fixed capital stock in absolute levels. So one is GDP and the other is capital, according to the conventional creed. And the top line shows you the rates of growth. So if you start, say, from the 1960s, you see that both of these, the fixed assets, which is the capital stock, and the GDP are decelerating. Growth rates are becoming smaller and smaller. And from this perspective, the current crisis is just the culmination of a massive deceleration that started you know, many decades ago and now coming to a head. And it's certainly consistent with the Marxist notion of a class struggle, which somehow disturbs the ability of capitalism to generate sustained growth. But, and here we come to the nagging problem, and that is that if you look at this problem or this question, or this chart, from the viewpoint of capitalists and workers, what are they trying to achieve? From an economic point of view, they're both trying to get more in real terms. So workers want higher wages in real terms to consume more, and capitalists want higher incomes in order to invest more and eventually consume more. So both of them are essentially on the same side of the fence. Both of them want the economy to prosper because prosperity serves both their interests. And we see that in the next chart, which measures GDP growth 
as well as the growth of pre-tax profit and the growth of wages. And we see they correlate quite tightly with each other. So when the economy decelerates, the income of capitalists decelerates, and the income of workers decelerates. So they are essentially in the same boat. For them, for both sides, if we are going to have an expansion, that is going to be a good thing. So though you might be deeply anti-capitalist if you're a worker, still you share an interest with capitalists in, in terms of wanting to have growth. Of course, there's a massive difference between Marxists and liberals in the sense that both of them, they give very different reasons for the crisis. Uh, for the liberals, it's distortions that somehow screw up the economy. And for Marxists, it's built-in conflict. And they have different solutions. Uh, liberals argue for deregulation, and Marxists argue that perhaps there is no solution. But both of them view crisis in real terms. And both of them view, the, view crisis in terms of productivity, in terms of utility, in terms of actual real production. And this is, I think, where we can finally come to our own approach that uh, argues perhaps we can use completely different spectacles to understand the fundamental difference between how capitalists view the crisis and how workers view the crisis. And this is from the viewpoint of capital as power. The difference is that we do not, from the viewpoint of capital as power, do not think of capital as an economic entity. We think about it as a power institution. And we do, therefore do not think of the crisis as an economic crisis of production and consumption, but as a crisis of capitalized power. Now, what do we mean by capitalized power and capitalist power more generally? Well, here I have to condense 30 years of thinking into about two minutes or one minute, which will be quite difficult, but nonetheless, I'll, I'll do it. Uh, the watershed is perhaps Johann Kepler. In 1600, Kepler changed our vision of force and power dramatically. Up until that point, power was, uh, and force were thought of as stand-alone qualitative entities. So power was an entity, just like earth or fire. And it was qualitative. It wasn't measured in quantitative terms. Kepler said, no, power and force are relations between entities. And they are quantitative relationships. We have to think of force in quantitative terms relating different entities. Now, if you take this idea, this scientific notion of power and force, and impose it on capitalism, then the greed of distribution, the distribution of income, the distribution of assets between owners. Owners are the entities. Distribution is the quantitative relationship between owners. So the greed of distribution is the greed of power in society. And that grid of power tells us about the relationship between capitalists and other groups in society, other classes in society, as well as between capitalists themselves. And taking this idea in its most general way, in the 1990s, we ask ourselves, what might be uh, a way to describe a regime of accumulation? And we said, well, a regime of accumulation a sustained regime of accumulation has to have at least two conditions fulfilled. The first condition is that differential accumulation has to be non-negative. Differential accumulation means the rate at which dominant capital, these are the largest 
capitalist group at the center of the political economy, the rate at which they accumulate relative to the average. So this group must become bigger relative to the average over time, or at least not decline relative to the average. And that will satisfy the drive for more power, because we argue that in capitalism, the idea is not to obtain maximum accumulation, it's to obtain differential accumulation, to beat the average, to be better than others. The second condition was that the share of capitalists in national income is going to be stable or rising. And the reason why it has to be stable or rising is that if it is falling, actually the very nature of capitalism will be put into question. If the share of capitalists in national income declines gradually, well, something very important is happening that moves us away from capitalism. So these are the two conditions that we said uh, will be necessary as minimum conditions. And on that basis, we uh, argue that the capitalist crisis is a violation of these conditions. So let's try to have a look at what happened in the United States, looking at these two conditions. Okay, so what this uh, figure measures is what economists call EBIT. EBIT stands for earnings before interest and taxes. So that's pre-tax profit plus interest. That will be capitalist income. Uh, the bottom, sorry, the, the top of the series uh, measures the share of capitalists in national income. And what we see as a very general observation is that this share is rising. So it was about 12% in the 1930s and 40s, and nowadays it's about uh, 16%. So that's an increase of about one-third. Also, there's a sense here in this measure that the volatility of this share of capital in national income is declining over time. And if volatility is some indication of risk, capitalists are facing declining risk, apparently, even though their share of national income is rising. It's counterintuitive to the claim of finance that you know the higher the return, the greater the risk. Here we see that you have higher returns power-wise, but also lower risk. Uh, the second uh, line in this figure at the bottom shows differential capital income, capitalist income. And what this measure uh, tries to approximate is the ratio of the top firms to the average. So if you take all the firms in the U.S. and you list them all uh, firms uh, incorporated in the U.S. and you list them by size and you take only the top 200 and you measure their average EBIT, and you compare that to the overall average EBIT, you get the series. And that will tell you that in 1950, a top 200 firm was about 900 times bigger than the average. Currently, it's about 14,000 times bigger than the average. So there's been a tremendous increase in the size of dominant capital in the center of the political economy. It's about 4.5% a year increase. And That sort of parallels also the increase that we see in capitalist income share. Now, if I were to, let me just try to arrange here the view. Okay. Okay. 
So I, I basically plot here the conventional creed of real economic activity, the real growth of GDP, the real growth of income of workers, the real growth of, of income of capitalists, and it's decelerating. So this is the sense of a lingering crisis that we have. But if you compare that to the power perspective, it's quite different. From the viewpoint of capitalists, their power is rising in general, and the power of uh, dominant capital, the large capitalists at the center, is rising as well. So this is quite different uh, when you compare these two views. Uh, so. so, okay. All right. Now let's begin with uh, the, the, the bottom of the chart. This is a logarithmic scale on the right. Logarithmic scale uh, is a very funny scale. It rises in jumps. So it rises from 500 to 1,000, to 1,000 to 2,000, to 4,000, to 6,000, and so on, uh, to 8,000. So it doubles every time, every jump. Uh, so changes in this chart are not very striking visually, but nevertheless, in quantitative terms, they're quite important. We see in the 1980s a drop here, and we see another drop here. This is 20% in the 19. Uh, 80s. So differential accumulation decelerated by 20% in the 1980s, and it decelerated by 30% recently. So these are potential crises that we see in those different periods. Uh, there is a, a significant difference, though, between the crisis in the 80s and the crisis currently. First of all, during the 80s, the size of capital in national income increased despite the decline of dominant capital. That's not the situation now. Here we see a decline in the capital share of income as well as a decline in dominant capital. But there, there is a, a much larger challenge that capitalists can think of. Imagine that we are here in the 1950s. Increasing the size of dominant capital from 900 to 1800 is quite easy. Compared to so that's doubling, compared to increasing the size of dominant capital from 14,000 to 28,000. Most of this increase is because of mergers and acquisitions. If we are to continue and see this exponential growth, the size of mergers and acquisitions has to recalibrate to the size of capital. But now the size of big capitalists or big capitalist organization is 14 times bigger than it was sorry, 14, uh, no, 17 times bigger than it was in the 1950s. So mergers and acquisitions have to be 17 time, times bigger now than in the 50s in order to just keep the pace of this increase. So it becomes much more difficult now for dominant capital to expand. And we see that in the news every day that we open the Financial Times, that it's very hard to engage in very large mergers and acquisitions now, nowadays. Uh, so that's one very serious challenge that capitalists, dominant capitalists are now facing, increasing differential accumulation even further. The alternative is to increase differential profit margins. And again, this is a very uh, tall order for dominant capital at this point. Now, can capitalists expand the share that they have in national income in general? So if the overall share of capital and national income is going to increase, Dominant capitalists will have more room to absorb, swallow smaller capitalists. Is that possible? And that brings us to the end of the presentation. We'll move to, the, to figure 15 here. 
Now, figure 15 should be quite counterintuitive uh, to most of you, regardless of whether you are liberal or Marxist in your, in your orientation. What we see here is a, a, a comparison or a superimposition of two series. One is the unemployment rate, and the other is the uh, share of capitalists in the form of pre-tax profit and net interest in domestic income. Now, there's a little uh, sort of uh, complication here in the data that the unemployment rate is lagged three years. It means that every observation of the unemployment is the unemployment rate prevailing three years earlier. The top part of the chart shows you the level. So it shows you the level of unemployment relative to the share of capitalists in domestic income. The bottom part of the chart shows you the rate of change of these two series. Now, this is quite remarkable because intuitively you would expect as unemployment increases, capitalists are going to suffer. They're going to see their share of national income declining. But that's not what we see here. We see here, both in the short term and in the long term, that the share of capital and national income benefits from higher unemployment. It doesn't suffer from higher unemployment. It's the exact opposite. So the higher the unemployment rate, the better off capitalists are doing in terms of the distributive share. The next chart shows you the same relationship, but instead of plotting this relationship against time, it plots the relationship between the two variables. So on the horizontal axis, we see the unemployment rate three years earlier. And on the vertical axis, we see the share of capital in domestic income. So that's kind of a functional relationship, quote unquote. Now I have here two statistics. Uh, one is the slope and the other is the so-called R squared. The R squared is a measure of fit and it's 0 0.82. It means in simple language that 82% of the squared variations of the pre-tax profit and net interest in national income is explained by unemployment. If you know unemployment, you know 82% of the changes in the share of capitalists. So capitalists coming and sitting here uh, can uh, be quite satisfied of, with having a very simple predictor of their share of national income, just looking at unemployment three years earlier. Uh, this also tells you exactly by how much the share of capital and national income is going to change with every percent change of unemployment. If unemployment changes in 1%, Three years later, the share of capitalists in national income will be 0.8% higher. Now, if we scroll back to the previous chart, what you see, uh, the kind of uh, sophisticated thing about this relationship is that you can see unemployment is rising, has been rising three years earlier, but we are projecting the data forward. So capitalists have quite a, a run on their... Uh, share of national income. They can see it rising in the years ahead. Now, this is quite remarkable because Marx was uh, prescient in understanding the role of unemployment in disciplining workers. But he spoke mostly uh, about the very short term towards the peak of the cycle, that you have to punish workers for having higher wages by inflating unemployment and reducing their expectations and ability to generate those wages. But here we see a long-term trend. We see capitalist uh, share of national income is rising along with the stagnation of the economy. 
along with unemployment. So this is a long-term relationship as well as a short-term relationship. Now the implications, I think, are quite um, significant here. Not only has the dogma of the mainstream economist collapsed in a certain important way, no, not only have policymakers uh, lost most of the ammunition that they had to fix things up, but here we are saying something rather different. We are saying that the very goals of policy are contradictory. Because the basic idea with the mainstream view is that uh, you know, the tide lifts all boats. And you have a tide of growth and a tide of capital accumulation. And capitalists, of course, are going to gain tremendously, but it's going to lift all of us with it. And policymakers catering to the capitalist also somehow are catering to our interests. Well, here we argue something quite different. We're arguing that by lifting the capitalist boat, policymakers have to, almost by definition, sink our boats. Because the only way for them to lift the capitalist boat, if you see it from the viewpoint of power, is by sustaining high levels of unemployment. Now, what lies ahead? Well, uh, we see this massive increase in the share of capitalists. And the question is, can this be pushed further? Remember, capitalists have no choice. If they are driven to beat the average, if they are constantly driven to increase their share of the total, and if this relationship is valid, in other words, if they need to inflict sabotage on society in order to do that, because that's the nature of power. Power is about taming the other, about sabotaging, undermining the other. If you need to do that, if you need to raise unemployment further and further, it means that the entire process is a double-edged sword. Capitalists need a crisis. They need a constant threat. They need a constant infliction of power. But at the same time, they know that this is threatening them. Because at some point, there could be a serious backlash. The question is, you know, how much can you push further and further? And this, we argue, is the underpinning, the serious underpinning of the current systemic crisis. Because we are hovering here around some peak levels. We're hovering here around some peak levels. And we are hovering here around some peak levels. So, you know, how much further can you push? And that's why capitalists are very, very nervous about the future, because they have no choice. They cannot just stop and say, well, we have enough power, because the drive is accumulate more accumulation, more power. You have to inflict more damage. All right, thank you. Thank you very much, Jonathan. We're going to open the floor up to questions. We have an audio recorder with us, and we'd ask that you hold it close to your mouth so that we can record your questions for posterity. I'm going to grab it right now. Thank you. Um, I find it quite amusing that you began by saying we must resist the gravitational pull of orthodox and heterodox economic theory, and then you spend an hour and a half talking about it, devoting only one minute to your own framework. Uh, I would have loved it if you spent an hour and a half on, on your own framework so that I could better understand what in the end just appears to me like a, a, you know, some, use, some data that invites questions, but I, I don't know what you, how you've given your answers to them. So in particular, I want to know what how your concept of crisis differs from that put forward by Marxist economists once you take the approach that you do. So are you saying that this is a, 
a terminal point that we've reached by virtue of the sheer expansion of um, the, uh, ownership, the growth in dominant capital vis-a-vis -vis the rest of capital, the expansion of capitalization into various different spheres. Is this a terminal process? Uh, if so, how do you judge that? How do we know that this is a terminal process? Because you've pointed already to previous dips. From what I can tell, the explanation you've given so far is that it's harder to increase from a, a higher starting point, but that's always been the case. So if this is a terminal moment, how do we know that? Um, once you take away the, uh, the economic ways of answering these questions, what would a capital of power framework do in response to these questions? Um, no, I'll just leave it there. I mean, I'm curious. And, I'm, and bring in the concepts rather than hiding them. Thanks. Uh, how do we know? Uh, we know in retrospect. Uh, I uh, worked uh, a number of years in the financial sector trying to predict the future, uh, but I don't believe that we are able to predict the future. That I leave for the fortune tellers. I think that history is always humbling because it has all those uh, sort of innovative aspects. Of it. So I, I don't think that uh, we claim uh, or that I can uh, or that I want to predict the future. Uh, it's interesting to note, I, I just worked out these things uh, in the last couple of days. This uh, thing that you see here, this uh, little uh, change, uh, last year when we worked out this uh, paper, it wasn't there. So this is kind of a confirmation that this relationship remains stable. Uh, of course, this doesn't answer your question. The question is, does this lead to a breakdown in capitalism? And I think that uh, we don't know that for a number of reasons. Uh, the first reason is that this is just the United States. The United States is just 20% of capitalism maybe nowadays. And uh, we have really no insight offered here at all to what happens elsewhere. So that's just a very partial picture. And maybe it's completely inverted in the rest of the world, and I wouldn't be able to tell because we haven't investigated it. But even if this was the picture for the world as a whole, uh, we don't know at what point the spring that sort of you press it eventually is going to uh, explode in your face and strike you back, because that has to do with the a certain autonomous moment that is created by pressing the spring, by inflicting sabotage. And, and the way that regimes change, uh, is always surprising to the ruling class, completely surprising to the ruling class. It, it's never able to actually predict those things. Uh, but it's never able to predict it because there is this autonomous moment that, uh, that is generated by the very rule that uh, represents the particular social uh, order we live in. So the short answer to your question after this preamble is that we don't know. It's possible that this kind of capitalism can continue and uh, inflict more and more damage. And instead of having, say, 16% of national uh, domestic income going to capitalists, possible to have 20% or more. We can move to a slightly different form of capitalism that is much more oppressive than we have now and nevertheless elicit no resistance and no significant transformative backlash. We don't know that. 
Uh, and uh, I think it's good that we don't know that, because otherwise we would be automatons as well. So uh, the answer to your question is that this framework is not meant at all to be a guide to the underlying population. It's an attempt to understand how capitalists might think about their own rule, because they view it really one-sidedly. Uh, from below, it looks completely differently, and this is not investigating it at all. I, I, I cannot use this to predict anything. Uh, if you Can I make a further, further Yeah. Um, I accept that as an as a acknowledgement of how fickle and fluid social reality is and social movements are and responses to economic processes. That's fine. Um, but by focusing for an hour and a half on two economic theories of crisis, you presented yours as an economic theory of crisis and I'm, or, or as a political or power theory of crisis. And I'm not suggesting, oh, you can't do that. Let's stick with the old ones. I'm very sympathetic. I, I just think that the future-oriented approach, mm -hmm. which you take and which I think is a good direction to move in, requires maybe a move away from the concept of crisis. I don't think a future-oriented understanding of capitalism can have a theory of crisis that can compete with the two you've just lined it up against because it operates completely differently. So you, you focus on capitalization, but there are many other ways in which capitalism is future-oriented. Capitalization is only, is only one. Um, and if we try to, I mean, obviously I haven't done this, but I'm just saying if we try to think about the different ways in which capitalism, the future has begun to transform capitalism, then the ways in which the future acts upon the present and turns it in, and renders it a turning point within a social process is no longer as straightforward as when you view it mechanically, either as you know, an economic system based on utility or, um, or labor, right? So maybe there's a fundamental uh, short, uh, limit to how far the crisis idea can go once you, once you see the future as productive of the present. Uh, so you, you are suggesting that the term crisis needs to be seriously reconsidered. All right. I, I don't even work as a concept. But, but, but I don't know. I mean, there, there are a few people here in the audience that I know that work in the financial sphere. And, and they would be, I, I think, uh, pretty comfortable with the idea of a capitalist crisis uh, according to their own criteria. So I think that capitalists still think of a crisis. What, what, what uh, we are trying to argue here is that crisis for capitalists is quite different and possibly... Uh, diametrically opposed to the crisis for everybody else or for most people in society or for alternative groups in society. And therefore, we need a completely different conception of what the crisis is. But I'm not sure that I have a vocabulary or even a framework for understanding the capitalist process without the concept of crisis. Having said that, you know, if, if somebody is able to come with a system in which the word crisis is you know, perch from, I'm, I'm fine with that if this is convincing. But I think that from my understanding of how the capitalist framework operates, the term crisis is pretty much ingrained in it. So I, I'm not sure how I can purge it altogether. A simple question. Could you elaborate? There's one capitalist who is a 
classically motivated, wants to maximize profit. The second capitalist is, is a capital, capitalist power capitalist, wants to beat the average. How can you tell the difference? What is the operational difference? How, how would they behave differently? Right. Uh, this is an analytical question because I don't think that the former capitalists exist anymore. So it's an analytical uh, question. Uh, now, what would be the different strategy of a capitalist that wants to beat the average and a capitalist that uh, actually just wants to maximize profit? Uh, I think that as far as large firms are concerned, beating the average is something that involves a strategy compared to your competitors, direct competitors, immediate competitors, if you try to beat the average, say, in the old business only. So that's a pretty limited way of trying to beat the average. Well, you're trying to undermine your uh, uh, competitors as well as increase your own earnings. And it's very, very important to pay attention to both because the interaction amongst large uh, actors is uh, a very complex uh, thing. And game theory has, has made uh, you know, tremendous fortunes out of this idea of interaction. Uh, at the overall level, because increasingly capitalists are not trying to beat just the average in their own sector, they try to beat the national or the, the global average increasingly, that becomes even more complicated because you're operating in many, many different areas. For example, uh, a capitalist might invest in particular uh, you know, production facilities, say, of energy, as well as financial activities, as well as service activities, as well as bonds, as well as commodities. And, of course, the question then becomes a policy question. How can we influence policies of different countries? So at that level, I think the negative element is very significant. Uh, in 19th century capitalism, when firms are very small, I mean, we know in, the, in 1950, the size of the large firms was 900 times the, the average, but in the 19th century it was much smaller than that. The hope of, of undermining the average is quite limited, but when you are very large, that's a different story. It becomes entirely political. So that, that would be a short answer to the question, I think. And the struggle between um, labor and capital, what you didn't kind of touch on at the end, though, was the kind of increase uh, mechanization, particularly recently with, um, you know, robots really taking over the labor force. And we're even seeing it with, um, say, say, the kind of driverless car, which eventually will mean that, um, you know, say even simple things like truck drivers will um, can lose their jobs. So this kind of labor seems to have lost complete power. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I see that in that way. If, if you look at technical change, um, I think that the, the invention of the local locomotive, for example, put all the uh, you know donkey drivers, uh, you know carriage drivers, out of business. Uh, so if we think of mechanization as uh, putting people out of work, everybody should be unemployed by now in a capitalist society, but I don't think that capitalism operates in that way. Uh, you develop new technologies that displace workers, but there are new technologies that actually employ workers, and I don't think that capitalists uh, 
can uh, conceive of controlling the world without uh, putting people to work because labor is a form of power, is a major form of power over human beings. Nowadays, you control human beings in other ways as well. You control them through the leisure. Uh, in the past, you control them through religion. You still do. You control them through ideology. You control them in many, many different ways. But still, putting them to work is a very important way of controlling them. If you have a population that is entirely unemployed, that's certainly the end of capitalism as a system of power, but also the end of capitalism from a neoclassical or from a Marxist perspective. So there's always this transition from you know, one form of technological uh, development to another, and uh, you know, uh, new, uh, new forms of employment emerge. Without employment, I don't think there can be capitalism. So in that, in that sense, there's a complete overlap between our view and the Marxist, although for the Marxist, employment is a way of generating surplus value. For us, employment is a way of controlling human beings, a very effective way of controlling human beings. Just the slavery was. I don't know if this answers your question. Well, I think that when we're in this period of quite structural, I mean, I think you're right in terms of um, of skilled peoples, but where there there is a, a quite a, a really massive problem is kind of lower skilled workers um, that aren't being retrained, aren't being um, you know those those new opportunities aren't actually there because you know the the, the job opportunities are in more the higher skilled areas. But in some way, this is a larger political question because I, I don't see the technical problem of training people to do other things. It's just capitalists are not necessarily interested in having them trained because a certain measure of unemployment is necessary for power. It's a stick. I mean, you can train people. What's the big deal to train them to do other things? set of priorities for society that capitalists perhaps are not particularly eager about. And there's nothing sort of mind-boggling in learning to operate mechanical equipment. Much of it uh, can be done by five-year-old uh, children, you know, playing with sticks and so on. And it's not more complicated now than it was in the past. If anything, I would say some of it is less complicated. So I think it's a political question. Political, not in the kind of a narrow sense, it's a political question for society to decide how to actually overcome the resistance of capitalists to, to good employment of people. This is part of the message I think we're driving at here. They don't want recovery, they don't want full recovery. There's of course a certain non-linearity, you know, full unemployment is impossible, no unemployment is very dangerous, but some unemployment is certainly necessary, as this chart suggests. Thanks uh, for your talk. I wonder if you could uh, just comment about how your analysis might affect something which is quite prevalent in British politics, like on the left and political economy, about the 1970s. There's quite a lot of stuff written about what was going on there in terms of um, employment going up and inflation and how factorism, and you talked a bit about Friedman and, and that, that shift in... Um, ways of looking at things but looking at your grass it didn't seem to me that there did was that the big shift sort of showed up that that shift towards neoliberalism like in your framework um so that's one question i yeah what what does your um analysis tell us about what was going on in britain in the 1970s in terms of 
the, the response to what was seen as a breakdown of Keynesianism and Thatcherism and all the rest of it? Well, I mean, I don't have the data for the UK, but I think that the UK is actually quite similar to the US in this particular respect. Uh, from, from the data collected by Piketty says, uh, they show two patterns of redistribution. One that is V-shaped, and the other is that is L-shaped. So inequality declining after the war and in the V-shaped countries, which include the US and Britain and maybe Canada, Australia, it's going this way. Whereas in other countries that are perhaps more progressive, it goes this way and there's some increase, but not much. So I think that the UK, if I remember correctly again, I don't have the actual data here. In the UK, we still see, we also see since the 1980s, a resurgence of inequality. And uh, I think that's sort of a backlash of capitalists against the threat to the capitalist nature of the society. So I think that the UK and the US are quite similar. And we had Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher coming to quote unquote power at the same time, but it's really re-empowering capitalists and they represent a new direction, a backlash of dominant capital and capital in general against the threat to, to their dominance. That Keynes facilitated, of course Keynes did not create it, but his theory facilitated because it enabled and, and justified and legitimized uh, government intervention. Yeah. So that would fit in with like existing radical analysis of 1970s and Thatcherism and all the rest of it, doesn't it? That that fits in with most sort of existing radical accounts of what was of Thatcherism and the crisis of the 1970s. You do see it as capital felt threatened and then retaliated and... and yeah, I think that there are quite a number of overlaps between what we claim and uh, what existing radical analysis suggests. I don't think that we are uh, making a claim that the entire world should be seen with a mirror, you know, it's kind of the mirror image, not at all. Uh, what we are suggesting, though, is that the principle of analysis should be perhaps different, that we should emphasize a measurement of power as opposed to absolute measurement of capital. I mean, on the, on the face of it, saying capital is power sounds nowadays almost uh, trivial. What do you mean capital is power? Isn't it obvious? Uh, well, it's obvious if you're not an economist, but if you are an economist, Measuring capital is measuring machines or measuring time or measuring something real. So there is a serious dissonance, I think, between the idea that capital enables power and that capital is power. And if you think of capital as, as power, then the analysis leads you in different direction. But to say that there is no overlap between those arguments, it would be just false. There is quite a lot of overlap in terms of conclusions, but sometimes there is the complete uh, opposite conclusions. So, for instance, we see stagflation not as a crisis for capitalism necessarily, and in, in, at least historically, it was a major boost when mergers and acquisitions uh, were going into law. Well, whereas uh, conventional analysis, both on the left and on the right, sees that as a straight crisis. Yeah, I mean that's kind of why I wanted. To, sorry, I, I will. I, someone else after this. That's kind of why I wanted to ask you about the 1970s, because in conventional analysis it was seen that stagnation was a, was a social crisis that needed a response, right? But I was thinking, from what I understand of your analysis, it was seen that stagnation was a way that the capitalists were trying to to reassert their power in a certain way. And But it sounds like in you know the policy response to that seemed to be trying to 
do away with inflation and and whatnot. So, yeah. Well, in our analysis, we wrote about it uh, a while ago, and uh, in, in trying to contrast what we call regimes of differential accumulation, and we argued that there are two that conventional analysis, again, both uh, left and right, suggests that uh, accumulation is about economic growth and price stability. And we sort of put the world on its head and we said, accumulation is about mergers and acquisitions, not economic growth. That's one driver of, of differential accumulation. And the other is not price stability, but inflation, in fact, stagflation. But stagflation, we argued, is a very risky type of strategy that capitalists are dragged into or pushed themselves into only when their backs are, are, are against the wall. Against the wall. When uh, merger activity dies down, they gravitate towards pushing prices up. And that can be achieved only by some measures, increasing measure of sabotage, then you have stagflation. If you look at this chart here, the period of stagflation, uh, this always intervenes here, so I'll put the cursor on the side. Uh, and the period from 1970 to the mid-1980s, you see a major spike in national income. But if you were to look only on profitability, uh, there was actually a lull and some, some decline in profit, in profit. And that was more than compensated by the share of interest in national income. So overall, the share of capital in national income during the 1970s and early 80s increased. In fact, in the early, uh, late 1980s, middle of the 1980s, the share of capital and national income was the highest. That's the peak of the so-called stagflationary crisis. So uh, in our earlier work, we, we did uh, suggest that this stagflation was a means of accumulation. And in fact, the claim that somehow the 1980s was a major crisis in capitalism, we argue that that was objectively not the case. I'm not quite sure whether you you explained it already, but I don't really get why um, or how domi if 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 dominant capital um, somehow benefits from crisis and dominant capital is is are big firms and very productive firms. How do they how they do they uh, avoid a realization crisis then, if they? Yeah? So how do So if if dominant capital benefits from from crisis and unemployment to a certain degree. How how do they avoid realization crisis? What what is the ex the theoretical explanation for that? Realization crisis is about the overall volume of profit. It's about the overall level of growth. But we are not concerned here with growth or overall volume of profit. We are concerned with the distribution. So it's possible that overall growth is going to decelerate, maybe even go negative. But the share of dominant capital in particular, and the share of capital in general might increase. So the period, say, of the 80s and 70s and 80s was a period of massive deceleration in GDP growth. It was considered a crisis for most people, but capital has increased its share of national income and managed to eventually increase its you know, dumb differential performance. But that's just distributional. So there's a fundamental difference between economic growth and distribution. And distribution can increase in favor of capitalists and dominant capital, sometimes in the midst of a crisis for everybody else, and sometimes because of that crisis. So that's why you need two different spectacles. The very contraction of GDP, or the deceleration of GDP, does not necessarily mean crisis for capital. 
anyone else? Don't be shy. Um, you mentioned that in some countries there is an L shape and in other countries there's a V shape. I wondered if you, I mean, I, I know you've acknowledged that you mainly use US data because that's the most readily available. Have you, I mean, are there any studies that you've taken that you could kind of, I don't know, briefly delineate? I mean, I find it interesting if other countries have managed an L shape, which to me suggests a kind of um, focus on equality, whether it's intentional or not. But what would be the, why would some countries not try and benefit from that kind of um, capitalist power? And why would they maintain an L shape? What would be kind of the, the, like, what's the difference between countries that do that and the US and the UK where inequality seems to be the driving force. Yeah, that's, what, that's why I'm delivering this lecture. I hope some of you are going to take it up and, and, and investigate it. it. It's one thing to actually plot those jobs. It's a completely different thing to make sense of those jobs. And uh, it would be out of the top of my head uh, to give you an answer, and it would be not really serious. Uh, I, I would have to look at what happens in Scandinavia, what happens in Holland, or what happens in France. And essentially, it's the balance of power, the dynamics of power in those societies that uh, dictate the distribution of income and the distribution of asset. Uh, and I think that perhaps the work of uh, Piketty and others uh, at least opened uh, the door to some kind of analysis, because Piketty is just offering uh, the, the data, but in fact, uh, in terms of explanation, I don't think that uh, he suggests or explains effectively why these processes have unfolded. What we are trying to do here is to offer some explanation of why these processes have unfolded in the United States. We found some stunning results, whether these results actually hold in other countries, well that remains to be seen. I don't want to uh, imply that I, I actually know because I don't. Yeah, a couple of things. Um, have you had it? You kind of just mentioned sort of Scandinavia, so I just wondered. I mean, Iceland was response to the crisis in two thousand eight was very different to to most other countries. So I kind of wonder, you know, what this kind of the share has there been quite a different distribution of um, of national income in Iceland as compared to other countries. Uh, Iceland is a very, very tiny country in terms of the population, and I really don't know the facts about the distribution of income in Iceland. However, I think that Iceland is a good illustration of the global nature of capitalism. So in many respects, the accumulation, the differential accumulation that has gone on in Iceland, the massive redistribution, is part of a global process rather than part of what happens in Iceland. Uh, and uh, in that respect, even the United States is becoming increasingly uh, problematic to investigate because in the 1950s, about 10% of the profits of the U U.S. based companies came from outside of the United States, and now it's about 50%. Uh, I think about half, on, if not more, of the companies listed in, in the United States are foreign-based. So the problem of limiting the analysis to a single country now have become so serious that they question the, the national boundaries that we impose on national accounts. And therefore, 
they put into question the very categories we use. And I think Marx's analysis of global capitalism was very prescient and very much ahead of its time in terms of the global drive of capitalism. And now we suffer the consequences of not preparing an alternative accounting system because our accounting system is inherently based on national accounting and we have no effective international accounting. We have some databases for companies. Those are not available for individuals to investigate. They're available only for institutions and so on. But we don't have anything more than that. So it, I think the dominant capitalists, the large firms, the large banks, have access to information that we mortals do not have. But even they are in the dark in terms of, of some of the global processes. And uh, I think small countries, such as Iceland, but nowadays even the largest ones are starting to suffer from that. And we had a terrible time trying to sort out these data and some errors that we uh, encountered that we made forced us to kind of to redo things because of that uh, cross-border transactions that uh, now blur the national boundaries. In terms of ownership, this is really serious now. So that's what I can tell you about Iceland. It's a good snapshot of how uh, the internationalization process is demolishing our analytical tools. Not just empirical, but analytical. Uh, I want to ask you about the relationship between indebted govern governments, you mentioned the OECD countries and the level of uh, indebtedness they have, and how they may affect the role of, in general, governments as supporting property rights and the, the position of the capital, I don't know, elite or power, group, uh, power behind the, the capital class. You have the expert right there. He's my student as well. Uh, <laughs> well, for those of you who don't know, uh, Sandy Hager uh, just uh, finished his uh, PhD on the distribution of the ownership of uh, the national debt in the United States. And what he showed in this dissertation was that, A, the personal ownership of the debt, as well as the corporate ownership of the debt, has followed this V-shape that we see in the distribution of income more generally. So, so the debt has become, not only has the debt increased as a share of national income, but more and more of it is held by fewer and fewer hands. Uh, now this is a, a, a very interesting, I think, finding. Uh, it's something that hasn't been done until now by anybody to, to map that redistribution process, and it's, it's a very innovative and, and important, I think, discovery. And it's uh, an interesting question to, I think, examine what kind of leverage capitalists have on governments. One possible leverage is the nature of government policy. It's not only just the size of government, but what governments want to do. Uh, with the fiscal and monetary policy, especially fiscal policy. Who are they going to tax? What kind of uh, projects are they going to be engaged in? You know, if you want to uh, think of an alternative political economy, which creates more jobs but doesn't uh, change the climate. So you need a completely different ecological uh, agenda. Will capitalists allow it? Well, maybe in the 1980s they would have very little say about it because the nature of uh, their concentration of power is much 
smaller. Nowadays, they do have the same component. So I think that that might have a very important effect on what can be done. You know, what kind of debt, for instance, can be uh, uh, eliminated. Some of the debt to large companies you can think conceivably could be uh, just uh, eliminated. The governments can basically say, oh, we're not going to pay. Uh, can they say it now? Well, possibly far less than they could maybe in the early 1980s. So that will have an impact not only on the ability of government to intervene, quote unquote, because intervention is a bad word because it suggests that somehow you have an economy that is separate of government, and the government comes in and intervenes. Well, I mean, there's no capitalism without, without government. That's kind of an impossibility, logical impossibility, and also historical impossibility. But, but government activity is not just about the size of government, but about what government does. Uh, there can be uh, forms of generating employment that actually will reduce the size of uh, capital and national income. Nowadays, I think capital is in a much better position to resist it than it was in the past. So I think that this is, this is a worthwhile uh, question to which I don't have an answer, but I can certainly appreciate the much stronger power that capitalists have over governments to prevent certain policies from happening. So you need a very, very powerful force from below to do it. Uh, and that certainly is possible. The question is, how do you organize it, and how do you, you know, change the perception of what needs to be done? I want to know about hype, um, because hype and fear are maybe related, maybe they're different versions of the same thing, different dispositions towards the future. So if the concept of, if the diagnosis of crisis here is that fear is systemic for whatever number of reasons we've reached, capitalization has proceeded so far or whatever, so that if, if crisis is systemic, if we're in a crisis because fear is systemic, um, where do fears come from? And the other side to that is where do, where, where, you know, who generates hype? And uh, is that not just, if not, just as, if not more important in analyzing the transformation in actually existing capitalist economies, if capital is power, um, then kind of, you know, the more mechanical approaches, which we see coming through when we talk about leverage with the government on so-and-so. There's a fluid element in the theory, which is fear and, and hype. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who do not know what hype is, the idea of hype is that capitalists are forward-looking. They're trying to think of what kind of profit trajectory that will exist in the future and discount that profit trajectory into the present. That's that's not our invention. Um, you read it in capitalist manuals about the stock market uh, that were written already at the turn of the century uh, with great elaboration of how you need to do it. So essentially, you have to project profit to infinity. I mean, they use this terminology. Uh, so the growth of profit all the way to infinity. It's ridiculous, but that's black and white. Into the present. 
Now, of course, this projection is uh, meddled with uh, the animal spirits, optimism, pessimism, but also is meddled with attempts of uh, groups in society to create bursts of optimism and pessimism. Because if you can fool everybody else to think that uh, this is going to rise at 10% uh, as opposed to 2%, then you can make a bundle, and then you can actually fool them in the other direction and sell it short. So. If you can manipulate investors to believe all sorts of silly things, then uh, as a manipulator, you can uh, redistribute income and assets quite effectively in huge quantities as opposed to relatively modest ways. However, I don't think that uh, the fear here is associated with excessive pessimism. Uh, I think the fear here is, is anchored in the very fact that uh, the share of capital in national income is at historical highs, and the share of dominant capital relative to the average is in historic highs. So this is, it, to me, it seems to me, an objective condition rather than an historical condition as opposed to future condition, uh, which presenting an increasingly more difficult future to harness the population, to uh, sustain the population without uh, major turmoil. And I think that the reverberations are seen around the world uh, as a consequence of these levels, but they are seen around the world in a way that uh, are not well informed because most people do not see it from, from a power perspective. So I, I don't think that this is, uh, this is some form of excessive pessimism. I think that this is an objectively grounded uh, fear that has to do with the fact that power now has been increased with a lot of sabotage quite effectively and the way to increase it further will require much more of it and it's more difficult. So, Just like the discovery of a new territory might have um, created more optimistic, optimistic attitudes towards the future in terms of profitability or in terms of potential for differential accumulation could not a new vista of the imagination, a new imagined future, change the objective conditions, I don't like the word, but in this case change the, the landscape within which differential accumulation is pursued. I don't, I don't, I don't see how it could be objective. I understand your question, but I think it's framing it quite differently for my answer. My answer is quite independent of the manner in which differential accumulation takes place, because it, it measures the consequence rather than the means by which it, by which it is achieved. So quite regardless of you using uh, you know, cold fusion for locomotion or using combustion engine, uh, still the, the distribution of income is uh, more unequal now than it was over the past century and possibly more unequal than it ever was in, in say, in the United States. So it's quite independent of the means by which capitalism has actually achieved that redistribution. At the same time, this picture, as I said, is very limited. It's just for the United States. Maybe I'm missing your question, but I, I, I'm looking here at the consequences rather than at the cost. Well, that's very bad. I, I don't mean technology, like, um, which is the way in which a business can make more money than its competitor. I mean a new story about what opportunity there might be making it be able to accumulate more vis-a-vis. -vis. I mean, if you were to tell me that greater distribution of income is associated with inflicting less damage on society and can document it, 
then your question will be valid. It's possible, it's conceivable that you can actually dominate the population more. In other words, raise the share of capital from 16 to 20 or 25 percent, but reduce the direct sabotage inflicted on society. It's possible, but so far from what we see in the chart, we're not there yet. What we see in the chart here is that for the past 70 years, it has been associated with unemployment. And whether we can see a complete breakdown of that relationship, I agree that it's possible. But I cannot imagine it at this point. And if that will happen, that will be a different form of capitalism. And capitalism certainly mutated uh, perhaps several times. So I'm the last one who is going to reject that possibility. It's entirely possible. I cannot just imagine it right now. And again, you are a younger researcher, so you know, your project is lying ahead. I hear a lot of clothing rustling and papers rustling, so I sense that the audience is, is getting ready to go. Do we have any other questions or comments before we wrap up? In that case, I just want to thank Jonathan for his presentation. Thank you all for attending today.